at the end of Quantumania, they painted themselves into a little bit of a corner because they have all the kings come out and all the kings look like Jonathan Majors. But also what is also true is that everything is possible in the multiverse, right? And so it would not be hard for them to recast Kang at this point if they needed to with a little yada yada multiverse portal situation. So I agree with you. I'm in constant conversation with folks I know over at Disney over what's going on with this. And I've all I've heard is we're in a wait and see space. Welcome. Hello. This is not the House of R, nor is this the ringer part of the Spotify podcast network. No, this is Visionaries. Welcome to Visionaries. If this is your first time listening, I'm Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and CEO and founder of Overcome. This is a show where we dive deep into gaming, nerd culture, and the creator economy and tell you who's who, why they do what they do, and what impact they are making on the world. And as you could probably guess by my initial intro there, we are joined today by Joanna Robinson, the co-host of the House of R podcast and the recent author of the MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. It is a new book, a first of its kind, a deep dive into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one of the most popular properties in all of pop culture and entertainment, and how it came to be. We'll dive into this as we work through the episode, but there's been very little reporting on the MCU and its rise, despite it being so dominant. I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. We talked to Joanna about sort of the cultural acceptance of the superhero genre and everything as a bigger part of pop culture. We also talk about access journalism and how difficult it is to get access to people at Disney and at Marvel to be able to actually write a book of this kind and the difficulty that her and her co-authors experienced in trying to report this book. But before we dive into the actual interview, I am joined by Prem to give us your top-level thoughts on the interview. Prem, what did you think of the episode with Joanna? Jacob, are you feeling yourself a little bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you pleased yourself with that opening? Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> no, we're both, we're both Big Ringer fans. I listened to Joanna's pod a ton. Prem, Prem recently got into the Mass Man show, the David Shoemaker Wrestling Pod, which also excellent. I was listening to earlier. Um, so, yeah, it's... But, a- it's we love our it's amazing how we have we both like very consistently engage with ringer pods and outside of i think the mass man show that's we probably listen to two entirely separate sets of podcasts like i i don't know if you listen to the bill simmons pod that's that's probably the Sometimes. only other one that that we have some overlap but like for me it's all of dave's dave chang's pods uh it's the Chicago sports pod. Like (laughs) I'm just kind of thinking how big that network is. Obviously not, not like super related to to the episode, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, I, so I'm, I'm going to say right now, I, I'm a bad nerd and I like haven't really watched a ton of the MCU. And I was I was saying this before we started recording, like I've seen Iron Man one and two for sure. I may have seen three, but like if I did either a it wasn't memorable or B, I wasn't paying attention. I've seen the first Avengers and then the last two Avengers 
And then like a random smattering of others in the middle, like Black Panther and Doctor Strange. The the one set that I I watch I've watched multiple times is uh the Spider-Man movies. I think Tom Holland absolutely kills it, and I think all three of those movies are, are fantastic. But um it it's it was fun having Joanna on because you two are hardcore nerds and you just nerded out for like an hour (laughs) that was great it was great i knew i was gonna nerd out but i do think we had a productive conversation about some of the more journalism reporting side of things you know like this is something as someone who has done a very minimal amount of coverage of sort of nerd culture and fandom even i've experienced and i certainly think there's a lot of parallels to gaming and how people treat journalists and reporters and gaming and how they treat them in their culture as well and so I think in that way, we could relate a lot. Um, I think we, I won't say we're the most unique interview on her press tour because I've not listened to all of them, but certainly a different shtick than I think she'll be getting of like people who are like, talk to us about your predictions for Loki, Joanna, which right. is, you know, she's very good at that. I'm not taking that away, but yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I kind of went into just a little bit of research on the MCU before we had her on because... I was kind of curious what all I've missed, like how much have I not watched? And I I didn't realize how much of a long shot the MCU was to start. Cause in my mind, it's, it's been so long since we had Iron Man and Iron Man was like a pretty successful film. It's like, Oh, Iron Man's one of your kind of S tier heroes. He's, he's, gonna be the guy for a lot of stuff but no wasn't was not no not originally and i learned about the merrill lynch deal like a week ago just after we had booked booked joanne on the on the pod and so finding out about all these things was was enlightening because yeah i to to my mind it was it was sort of a sure shot that they'd be building a larger universe Obviously, like when when Iron Man one came out, when Thor one came out, they weren't thinking about Infinity War Endgame. They were they were just thinking about those movies and maybe like the initial tie in Avengers one. But to think of how these movies are. They really did start from. One kind of. What now seems like a, a not so crazy idea, but was back then a very crazy idea when we didn't really have a lot of good superhero movies. Yeah, then. I mean, it was like, it was effectively like the ones that made the superhero. And it's so funny that that Disney is involved actively and Marvel directly is involved with these franchises now. But, you know, the the few movies that really hit it off for the people maybe not as familiar with the history is Spider-Man 1, the Sam Raimi film from the early 2000s with Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, X1 and X2, the first two X-Men movies that were Fox, like Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, and then Blade, which was this, like, Blade's one of my favorite movies ever, but, like, this, you know, sort of more mature, like, vampire killer type movie which i adore all the blade movies even the garbage one blade three which has ryan reynolds as like this weird vampire cult leader yeah yeah but uh the those kind of three films 
set off this motion that like it it seems like now if you think about movie theaters or the box office and you think about what's coming out in the next year a superhero movie they're like they almost all the time it's so second nature they are the thing that gets other than you know Barbie and Oppenheimer this year which have been both very unique in a good positive way but the superhero films are the ones that always get the huge box office numbers that wasn't the case even 25 years ago. And the story of Marvel was so fascinating and why I think there was material for her to write this book is that it was a long shot. This was a company that has had one of the most interesting turnarounds in the past 25 years to go from bankruptcy and having to piecemeal and sell off all of its rights to figure this out. It had to go from that all the way to what it is today, which is a pop culture powerhouse. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about it now, and and I think part of the core reason that we didn't see as many superhero movies is because we didn't have the tech. Like, like can you imagine trying to do Iron Man one with the like semi practical effects that were in play for any of the Batman movies of the '90s, even? the the Superman movies like I, I just can't imagine it and so I, I I guess in that sense it it makes sense that that now that there is the technology the the animation the CG that allows you to create these kind of incredible just sequences of action where you don't have to be spending an arm and a leg and a massive team of of professional effects artists to to figure out how to do this practically the the source material is there yep it, it's it you don't have to you don't have to do the the entire ideation and and story building the story has been told it's just a matter of adapting it in that sense and this is obviously no fault no 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 knock on the MCU it's a little easier and so it makes sense that superhero movies have have taken off. We've seen the same with with a lot of kind of adaptations. A lot of stories are being told where the story has already existed. But now we have all of the effects, all of the the new technology that allows those stories to be told in in a way that really feels authentic to the source material. Like for, for me, sure. I'm a massive X-Men nerd. I fucking love the X-Men. And and it's I mean it breaks my goddamn heart that they've ruined that that team with some trash movies. But when they do it right, it it's killer. And it's because we have we have the tech to make it look good. X1, you can still see it's a little rough. They're doing a lot of things practically. X2, you get more of the CG but then it goes downhill. X3's trash. First class is great. Um, and then that that arc goes downhill. And the only saving grace to the Tell X-Men. You didn't like Dark Phoenix? Oh, God, I don't want to talk about Dark Phoenix. I don't want to talk about Dark Phoenix or Apocalypse. They're so bad. And uh, Apocalypse pisses me off especially because that, that villain is so good. Yes. God, I love Apocalypse. I love Apocalypse arcs in the comics. I loved Apocalypse in the old X-Men animated series from the 90s. 
they ruined Apocalypse. But again, <laughs> thankfully, none of that is technically part of the MCU. So not even relevant to this discussion. Kevin Feige um, can snap it away and pick and choose whatever the hell he wants. Right. At this point. I mean, and, and the, speaking I, of, I mean, I, I want to talk about what well, the one other thing we we talk about it towards the end of this podcast, because it's, un, you know, we are recording. We recorded this podcast. You're listening to it on a Friday. Chances are, if you're a nerd and you clicked into a Marvel podcast, you probably have watched the premiere of Loki. There is a massive, massive sort of ship hanging over Loki, and that is what is going to happen with Jonathan Majors. He's an extremely talented actor, but who is accused of domestic violence by multiple people it's in the middle of a court case about such. And here he is, the center villain for the next seven years or so of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they've hitched all their toes to him. We talk about this in a way they didn't do with Josh Brolin and Thanos previously. They've hitched all of it. There's an ending scene for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania where it's a, an arena, a coliseum of thousands of Kangs. Jonathan Majors playing all of them. And he's in the series that just premiered. He is likely going to continue to be in the MCU in one fashion or another. But in the event that the allegations against him are true, they have a real problem. After 15 years of pretty much unbridled success, they are now faced with what the hell are we going to do? And that is so interesting. There is certainly Marvel fatigue that exists, but they got a bigger problem than just people tired of their films when they have one of their biggest stars in a, a very significant and very serious scandal. And it was interesting to talk about that part with Joanna as well, because that's playing out in real time. I, I think about Robert Downey Jr. That man did not, was not the kind of like squeaky clean person we, we know today. Even like just before Iron Man. It takes a lot of effort for, for Jonathan Majors to like effectively rehab his image and and whether we like it or not it's it's a lot of just very intentional branding on on everyone's part but <laughs> I'd I'd be lying if I said people don't forget like people forget it it, it that aside like there's enough solutions to this. And this is a, a general issue I have with IPs that play around with, with multiverse ideas. If you ever need to scrap something, you can retcon it all automatically. You, you, you have a free, like just a free ticket every time. Like, ah, this, this thing didn't work. Multiverse tomfoolery. Are, we fixed it. <laughs> Jonathan Majors Kang gets gets found by another Kang who's who's a different actor. That Kang is is actually the Kang that that becomes the the main Kang for the next however long. You can you can just kind of snap you snap your fingers and multiverse it. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's something that it comes up with a lot of 
IPs that that do the the multiverse bit. And and it I have my my issues with with how that works. But I I don't think Jonathan Majors is necessarily that big of an issue in the long run for Marvel because they have a PR machine that rivals like the UN. <laughs> they have the multiverse loophole that they can kind of just tap into whenever they want and more money than God. Yep. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I fully understand the, the concern in regards to him, but like, I'm, I don't think it's actually a, a, a real issue for, for Disney or Marvel. We'll see. It's uh, it's going to be the, very interesting to see it play out. It's a very interesting time to be having a court case about one of your main stars while oh, yeah. the series that he's in is premiering. Like that, that's a big deal for those two things to be very similar in time and time length. So we'll dive into the episode with Joanna. For those listening, if you are a free listener of Visionaries, we do have a Patreon that we recently launched and we appreciate your support. You can find that in the show notes at patreon.com slash Jacob Wolf, Mikhail Clementoff. I won't do the spelling though this time. Find it in the show notes, the podcast show notes. But- There's a free tier. There's a free tier. There's a free tier. We got we to gotta, we gotta drill this down. You, you don't have to pay. I know you hear Patreon are like, I don't want to put my, I don't want to pay. Please pay though. Please pay. You, we, we want we, you to pay. We- but if you, if, if you don't feel like you, you can pay right now, we have a free tier. Hop in the Discord, hang out. We we're gonna be doing more game nights, more Q and A's, more just kind of community events because that's what we want to be doing. We want to be engaging with our audience in a in a more direct and like kind of intimate manner. So and it's never been more important than right now at a time where headlines and meta descriptions are being removed from Twitter. There are a lot of things right now that are going wrong with the social internet and our ability to be able to deliver quality content to you. Please, we beg of you. If you are just used to having on Twitter notifications for me or, you know, getting, see me in your for you feed and clicking through my work, that's going to start, start happening less and less and not because of me, but because of the platform. And so our whole goal transparently is to get everyone the fuck off of social media and into our platforms where you can come and find us directly, engage with us directly, and we can ensure that you're getting quality coverage of gaming, nerd culture, and the creator economy. That's what we want to do. We appreciate people's support. If you feel like you have the means to pay for that, we really do appreciate it because we are trying to build something that is not reliable on social or reliant on social media not reliant on Google CPM that is not going to have the same faults of so many other gaming media verticals and what they've had in the games, stupid games that they have had to play because stupid games get stupid prizes. We are not trying to do that. And so if you feel like you can support monetarily, we genuinely appreciate it. We do have some really good benefits for those patrons. And if you do it before the end of October, you can lock in a special price of $7 a month for the entry tier $15 a month for our second tier or $75 a month for our third tier, various different range of benefits. So find that in the show notes. We appreciate y'all. And now 
we will dive into the interview with Joanna Robinson. Joanna Robinson, welcome to Visionaries. Thanks for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm so I'm so delighted to be here. Before we kind of dive into the real reason you're here, let's let's scoop the House of R. What is your Ahsoka Vinali reactions? You are scooping House of R. Wow, what a move. Power move. Yeah, I'm genuinely, this is not me blowing smoke. I'm still processing. I thought it had definite high points, but I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of I'm curious what the idea was behind this, and I'm really hoping they get another season to continue to tell the story. I know we're in the like larger Ron saga, but I really do think I need another season of Ahsoka specifically to like set me up for everything. So that's where I am. And then like very sad, of course, that we won't get any more with Ray Stevenson as Balin, and that's just like it was this big sort of cliffhangery moment for him, and now. Now we don't know what they're going to do. What uh, do you think they'll recast the Balin Skull character? Or do you think that they changed up? If you had to predict that they changed up the edit to basically that be the goodbye. I would be surprised if that would be the goodbye. I, I suppose they could have, but it's all leading towards him doing something right. And in theory, they need that yeah. thing to happen in order for their larger story to pay off. So I don't know if they then have shin do it instead but that doesn't seem to make sense because it feels like it needs someone with like a longer deeper connection to the force than my beloved shin hottie or or they recast them i think they should recast i mean devastating but i think they should recast them and i think in general lucasfilm should get a little less nervous around recasting but we've talked about that with like luke yes. and leia and what they're doing right now with them so give us a give us a recast i'm I'm. it'll be nearly impossible to replace ray stevenson but i'm sure there are other al- actors so out there with you know the gravitas to do it not a unique take from me he is because i've heard you all say it and i've heard like the midnight boys and a bunch of other people in the nerd culture coverage sphere say this but like he's one of the most interesting characters new to star wars like of the new oh, yeah. the new additions just like absolutely loved the arc and was like genuinely invested through the whole series so i know it's you know and yeah what a what a what a terrible terrible coincidence i suppose that like they finally stumble on a character and an actor that has like captivated everyone versus the hit or miss of some of the other characters and then you know this wonderful performer who has been delighting us for decades shuffles off it's it's really sad but but you know Lucasfilm has bigger problems, I think, on their hands than that. There's a lot going on over there that I have questions about. So let's dive into why you're actually here. You have authored a book, co-authored a book about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the creation of Marvel Studios. You know, I will get into this a little bit later because I want to talk about why there isn't as much like deep reporting coverage around sort of, I would say not just Marvel, but a lot of the more nerd pop culture type stuff, whether it be Star Wars, whether it be Marvel or DC or any of the other like bigger franchisees elements, which are huge now, but historically have not been, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think that the story to people like me, to pe- it's certainly people like you, the story of Marvel is pretty well known. The fact that there was this studio that basically went or this, you know, comic book company that basically went bankrupt and had to sell all of its TV rights off as means of revenue, right? It got it sort of all displaced from, Sony to Universal, et cetera. And then Kevin Feige and the group basically banked on a B tier, C tier character in Iron Man and started the Marvel Cinematic Universe off the back of this, uh, the success of the back of Iron Man 1. But I think a lot of people 
don't actually know that story, the people that aren't, you know, I think to a lot of people, the Marvel Cinematic Universe just came out of nowhere and like Avengers in 2012, it's just like, holy shit, this is like a, a big deal. To you, you know, in the reporting and the writing of this book, what did you learn that was new about the creation of Marvel and Marvel Studios? Yeah, a lot of it has to do, thanks so much for asking, a lot of it has to do with a lot of details. I knew the broad strokes of it. I think a lot of us who have been in the world for so long know a lot of the broad strokes of it. And in that way, it worried me a little that we wouldn't have anything new to teach you or, you know, your more devoted listeners who feel like they've been following this story for so long. And so what we, our challenge then was to go deeper than the reporting that previously existed, to talk to the people who were there and involved and try to get some flesh out the bones of the story so that it feels like a more lived in story because something that's true you alluded this to to this a little bit but something that's true of marvel definitely of disney as a parent company is that they don't like other people telling their story and they don't like stories out there that they don't control there was a marvel book that you know in the writing of this we wrote this started this 2019 in between when we began and when this published, Marvel's own book about their story came out. Marvel Studios, a two-volume, beautiful coffee table book. We knew that was coming, so it's not like it shocked and surprised us. And I read it. It's great. It's great for what it is, but it leaves out so many details that are important for filling out the story, not because they didn't have space, but because I think they didn't want anything out there that didn't make them look like perfectly golden successful you know and what i think those stories are so much more interesting when you show the stumbles and the conflicts and all the things that were in the way to their success because that makes their success like that much more astonishing or interesting to me so a lot of the stories that are in there are just, you know, people being candid with us, frankly, in a way that they often aren't candid with Marvel approved storytelling or other interviews just because, you know, this they knew we were doing the whole story. We were talking to hundreds of people and they were like, okay, well, then I can tell you this story, right? Surely someone else has told you this story. I can tell it to you. And so that the personalities come through a bit more. You learn a bit more about who Kevin Feige is in the face of conflict. You learn the extent Ike Perlmutter, uh, who was the head of Marvel East Coast, well, Marvel all together, but in the division between Marvel East Coast, the comic book company, and Marvel West Coast, the studios, which is sort of the main battle that runs through the book. Ike Perlmutter and his various cohorts over there, Kevin Feige and what was going on at Marvel Studios, David Maisel, who is this like genius who came up with the deal in the first place to launch Marvel Studios. I feel like his story isn't often told in full. So that's going deeper on everything. And I mean, I'll be curious to hear what you think, but we've heard from a lot of people who know this story backwards and forwards that there was stuff in there they didn't know. And that I was just like, yes, we did it. Thrill of a lifetime. So that was the goal. Yeah, I think that you all did a solid job of that. And I want to dive in a little bit later about sort of the process of writing a book like that, because I think as someone who's a games journalist and has covered the gaming space for a decade at this point, I think there's a lot of similarities between kind of the access and PR that I deal with and probably what you deal with when dealing with the Hollywood entertainment on the sort of nerd culture side. And I, I think I have a little bit of theories as to why that ends, which we'll dive into. For the people maybe unfamiliar, though, can you walk through a little bit of the financial stakes of Marvel Studios at its early creation and like how important it was for this company to get this right? Yeah, hopefully I won't bore your listeners on a Thursday morning, but the the Marvel Studios launch deal 
was by no means a guaranteed thing because Marvel Comics goes bankrupt in the 90s. Ike Perlmutter takes over Marvel and is, from a certain point of view at that time, sort of a hero of Marvel, right? He rescues, he helps to rescue Marvel from bankruptcy. There's a lot of conflicting struggle over who will control it, but Ike wins, Ike takes over. Ike, understandably, in a post-bankruptcy world, you're going to be really cautious with how you spend money going forward, right? Because your, your, your massive company just went bankrupt. And so part of what they did to rebuild was they started farming out licensing you know, it's not not new, new, but but they started in earnest sort of licensing out some of these characters to other studios. And so Spider-Man gets licensed out to Sony and, and that's how we get the Sam Raimi, so, like Sony Spider-Man films. X-Men go to Fox. Hulk goes yep. to Universal. Like that's so we're getting all these Marvel films that say Marvel in the front of them, but are not made by Marvel. Right. They're made by other studios. And that's that was the status quo in the early aughts. You have some real hits coming out of there like you know the first x-men movie or or blade is is one that everyone points to as this like massively successful non-marvel studios made marvel movie but then you got some big old flopolas like daredevil ben affleck's daredevil or electra etc and so david mazel who was not even working for marvel at the time but was a fan of the comics is like watching this happen and he's such a business genius and it just bothered him on a certain level to see marvel leaving money on the table right because they get a little cut yeah. of those deals but they don't get to reap the benefits of buying man's global box office hall etc and so and david was a little frustrated that things like daredevil and electra existed so david goes to ike perlmutter at mar-a-lago donald trump allegedly was there because ike perlmutter is pals with donald trump that's a whole nother story but go have this like sort of very fateful lunch at mar-a-lago where Maisel's like ike I know you like money, making money. Who doesn't? Why are you leaving all this money on the table for other studios to profit? You're getting your the the toy licensing. You're getting a percentage of the of the you know lo- loaning the character out, but you're not getting the full box office, and you don't have creative control over what these characters do. You know, to a certain degree, there are some rules, but overall, you're not getting to craft the stories to sell the toys that you want to make. You know, to to bump up your profits. And so Ike says, okay, David, if you want to make, if you want to make your own movies, that's what you want to do. You could do it. I'm not giving you any money to do that though. You have to figure out where the money comes from. That's where we get what's called the Merrill Lynch deal because they, they made a deal with the bank Merrill Lynch. This is the brilliant thing that David Maisel did. He had to convince Merrill Lynch that a string of characters that they had were worth a massive amount of money so they they leverage these characters and if they lost this gamble with merrill lynch they would have lost a number of characters and merrill lynch would have owned them that is iron man <laughs> captain america <laughs> black panther thor etc cetera, etc cetera, all these characters so mazel had to convince the bank that those characters were like globally recognized smashola brands now but were as you said before, B tier, C tier characters that nobody was reading Iron Man comics, really. No one was no one cared about Captain America. He seemed hokey and old fashioned. Thor, strange, spoken like weird Shakespearean font. You know, your mileage may vary if you were a fan of those characters at the time. I'm not saying you didn't exist, but they weren't widely popular. 
he had to convince the bank that those characters were worth millions of dollars, like a millions of dollars loan over to Marvel to start their own studio while convincing the very skittish board at Marvel Entertainment. Don't worry if you leave lose Iron Man and Captain America on this deal. They're not that important anyway. It doesn't matter. And so then they had, I think it was, I believe it was four at-bats to pay the money back to Merrill Lynch. Four movies. They got this big loan. You have four movies to make the money back and pay back Merrill Lynch or they own these characters forever. And I mean, Iron Man comes out and it's <laughs> this massive hit <laughs> and they're already almost all the way there to paying back the loan with just one movie. And so that's what they were gambling was like, if they didn't, if they didn't hit it out of the park with those first few movies and pay Merrill Lynch back on the loan, then they would have lost those characters. Marvel Studios would have folded and we never would have even probably gotten to Avengers in the first place. I don't know. That's that's my best ability to. This is my best uh, chance at boiling down this very complicated financial deal into into what was yeah very, this very famous gamble that Marvel took on their future, and they won. Well, and you alluded to it in in your answer there, but it's it's crazy to think about this. This was only you know it was two thousand five, two thousand six. Like it wasn't all that long ago that 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 was happening. And here we are in 2023 and it like, it sounds crazy to hear that given what the MCU and the relevance of superhero movies and how nerd culture has become pop culture broadly in the most dominant form of pop culture, truly in many different ways. It's so crazy to contrast their power and their status now versus the position and where they found themselves on the back foot then. Absolutely. Like the definition of a meteoric rise, you know, it just with that first film, Iron Man, like just the way that Iron Man performed at the box office. One of my favorite barometers for this, because in the researching of this, we, of course, like went back and watched all of the Comic-Con panels and, you know, the announcement of the Marvel slate, you know, when they when they said they were going to make Iron Man, they were going to make Hulk. You know, in the future, we're going to make Ant-Man. That didn't happen in Hall H. They weren't even in the main hall at Comic-Con when they made that. I don't even think they were in Ballroom 20. You know, they were like they were in a satellite room and, you know, listening to people who were there at Comic-Con that year, like what the buzz was on the ground. It was like everyone was like no one wanted to go to that panel. It was just they weren't interested in that. There were other more exciting panels going on, you know, cut to a few years later. I mean, even when. Iron Man footage debuts at Comic-Con. That is just a game changer forever. And then Marvel is the event at Comic-Con thereafter. Not even at Comic-Con this year because they don't need to be, right? Like they they just straight up D23. Like they have their own, Disney has their own thing and they don't even need to be there, right? Like they're so much bigger than the event itself. They conquered Comic-Con and then they just developed their i mean d23s existed for a long time but like essentially like developed their own comic-con that they were like well we don't we don't have to play by your rules at all san diego we'll just do this in our backyard in anaheim and everyone will come see it so yeah it's uh it was uh, it was just an explosion just right idea right time and then just a million little elements like casting Downey or getting Favreau to direct it, you know, all the things that came together for Iron Man, just a really implausible situation that it just exploded the way that it did, you know. And then Hulk, Hulk is obviously the, the movie that came after Hulk is 
not considered the best Marvel movie, but it still did like well enough. And then Iron Man 2 is a big hit. And then Captain America and Thor, these great instructions. And then you get Avengers and then you're just, it's done. It's a done deal. We're just the dominant storytelling for a decade, you know? I want to ask two follow-ups on that. I think one, how much of, from your reporting, was that journey planned from the very beginning to get to, especially to get to Endgame and Infinity War, right? The the Thanos culminary moment. How much of that was planned from your reporting versus how much of that was invented kind of as they went along? Because as you mentioned from the Merrill Lynch deal, it was not guaranteed that they were going to even get there in the first place. So like you could have been laying a bunch of, you know, Infinity Stone Easter eggs throughout and then they're nothing, right? They just, okay, you lost, it's dead. Definitely not. They were not planning Infinity War and Thanos from the start. Absolutely not. And I'm not even I uh, you're there are conflicting reports, but I don't I don't even think you could say that from the Avengers they were planning, even though Thanos appears in the first Avengers movie. I don't think you could say they were like, well, let's use Thanos in the future, but not necessarily we're going to draw in every character and put them all together Mm -hmm. because like, you know, A reason why Infinity War Avengers feels and Endgame feels so big is you are drawing not just from the Avengers crew, but you you bring in the Guardians of the Galaxy crew, you bring in Spider-Man, you know, you bring in all these other elements. Ant-Man's here, Doctor Strange's here, blah, blah, blah. And that's because all these things were working, right? But when... When Nick Fury shows up at the end of the first Iron Man movie, that was just, Feige has said that was just sort of like a treat for diehard fans. And and did they mm. think they wanted to do this interconnected universe? Yes. And a number of people want to take credit for that idea. It's, it's hard It's hard to know exactly whose idea was. Was it Kevin Feige's idea? Was it David Maisel's idea? Avi Arad will claim it was his idea. You know, I think it's some sort of Kevin, David hybrid idea of franchising and interconnectedness. Which which was what set Marvel apart from everyone at the beginning. But building to the Avengers was something that they had in their mind, given the roster of characters that they were working with. But building towards Infinity and Endgame only happens because every risk they take after that ends up working out. People really responded to T'Challa. So we get, you know, the Black Panther element and all of that. People respond to Guardians of the Galaxy in a way that nobody expected yeah. the guardians of the galaxy gamble which we My talk about a lot favorite of like i i love it and like i'm glad it exists i'm glad it's different and right like I, yeah. I love the guardians for that reason yeah but yeah it's like and to your point exactly it's when they made it if you watch the first guardians of the movie if that movie hadn't worked they could have just snipped those characters out of continuity and just like been a one and done we tried it Nobody really liked the talking raccoon and the weird tree. Like nobody liked it. Okay, forget it. We're not going to do it anymore. We tried it with James Gunn. It didn't work out. That felt like their big gamble, like their really big gamble after the financial gamble that they did. This is like a creative gamble and it paid off. You love it. A lot of people love it. And so then Guardians get wrapped into the larger continuity. They make the deal with Sony. So suddenly they've got a Spider-Man that they can work with. And Mm -hmm. so I think that sort of like how big the universe becomes is dependent on a lot of other things working along the way. And, 
you know, like any good creative team, Marvel is reactive to what's working. And that's, I talk about this a lot when I talk about television, how important it is to be flexible and reactive when making television. Is a character working? Is the audience enjoying that character? Okay, let's let's build their storyline up a bit more. Oh, is that not working? Okay, let's just sort of fade that into the background. And that's something that People at Marvel don't like it when I compare the MCU to television, but it kind of is. You know, every movie is in its own way, like another season of television or another episode, if you prefer. It's just an ongoing saga. And so they learn what works, doesn't work. People love Steve Rogers. Okay, let's just like continue to bump up his importance in the ranks of this team. People are not connecting with Thor as much. Okay, let's just put him to the side for now and then like we'll figure out what to do with him going forward. Yep. He's not he's not in Civil War. We're not really sure what we're doing with Thor. Let's figure it out later and then they did. So that's it I don't think it's a negative. I'm not saying you said it was, but I think some people think if the thing isn't planned out all the way every single detail beforehand, oh, they're just making it up. But like that's what storytelling is. You're just making yeah. things up and, and you know, you should be creative and flexible in your storytelling. So, yeah. You know, what's interesting, especially given that you cover both of these franchises in your regular reporting and, and in your podcasting is, you know, I remember, I'll never forget, we, there was a thing at ESPN when I worked there, I'm sure it's still a thing called Rookie Camp, where they would bring out sort of the new hires to, come sort of extol over a period of two days. Like half of the day was like very technical. Here's how you use all the systems. And the other half was like, I called it injecting a Mickey mouse into your head because it was just like Disney propaganda for the better part of like, you know, six hours. And I'll never forget, even in 2016 before Disney plus before it was so apparent what the, the goal of this company was, you know, going into this like little conference room in the basement of an ESPN building and seeing this presentation that was like, Disney, ESPN, Marvel, Star Wars, and like these like giant, like it was very clear even back then, there's tent poles that are going to be the structure of this company. And what I was talking about is it's interesting to compare Marvel to Star Wars in a lot of different ways, because I think that Disney has been extremely additive to Marvel. They have made its might, again, contrasting to the company that went bankrupt and had to sell off all its movie rights, it, they've made its might a whole lot bigger. They've given it a significant amount of creative resources it's never had. It so much to the point that Sony, you know, comes back to the negotiating table and is and negotiates a Spider-Man share agreement. Right now, yeah. twice there's been two of them because it's just you can't deny the relevancy and and the skill paired with the business power of Marvel Studios at this point. And then you contrast the Star Wars. I think that a lot of and I have mixed feelings about the way that people treat the Star Wars franchise post post Disney acquisition. I think a lot of it can be very sexist and pejorative, which is not helpful because you had a female cast lead in, in the sequel trilogy. You also have Kathleen Kennedy, who you know is a businesswoman, and a lot of people can be very sexist and shitty towards her. But I do think that, like, that aside, look at episode seven and episode nine and, like, they piss me off a lot of the times because they just like kind of repeat the formula where I know like you guys on House of R and a lot of the folks at the ringer have some love for episode eight, the last Jedi as, as do I, cause it's different. Try something new. Ryan Johnson tried something new. And it's, I think that a lot of people can make a somewhat valid argument that Disney has been a little bit hurtful to star Wars and they, in a way that they haven't been with Marvel. I think they've been very additive. How do you think they, 
How do you think Disney changed Marvel and that acquisition changed Marvel from your reporting? Yeah, I'm, I I don't know how much I would lay that on Disney, but I would say the Disney era for sure. Not, I'm not I'm no great defender of Disney. Disney has done plenty of things that, you know, I don't love. So I'm not I'm not here to be defensive of them, but I'm trying to think about it. I don't know that Disney has been more oppressive in their control of Lucasfilm than they have of Marvel and all by all reporting, they're actually fairly hands off creatively with both of those uh, empires. And so also as loathe my, as, as loathe as I am to lay things at Kathy Kennedy, when I do think she gets a bad rap a lot of the time, you know, this is her organization top down comes from her. My main observation of star Wars under Kathy in the Disney era and Kathy is, a legend in the industry and has done a million things right. They're very nervous and reactive. That's what I find. So like mm. The Force Awakens, as an example, a movie that I actually quite like, but I but I take all of your critiques of that because it is a familiar playing playing the same beats. Hey, remember this. You you really liked A New Hope. Let's just do it again. I understand. I like seven better than nine. Nine is yeah. awful. Yeah. Nine we all agree. <laughs> Nine, we all agree on, but you know, I, I I, like, I see the criticisms of seven and I had a good time with it. Nine, I had a really bad time with. So, you know, like there are different levels, but with seven, with The Force Awakens, they're, they're a little, there's what they're reacting to, as far as I can tell, is the negative prequel buzz, right? People who hate the prequel movies. You know, that's changing as a generation that grew up with the prequel movies becomes adults and are able to voice their opinions, their prequel love. There you go. Like, you know, there are people who love the prequels. That's great. I respect it. But it feels like The Force Awakens was made for original trilogy fans who did not, you know, so JJ comes on camera, you know, in advance of the release is like, we've got puppets again. We've got that, you know, like we're going back to the old ways. Don't worry. We're not going to do now. This is pod racing in our movie, et cetera. Right. So it's reactive to what they perceive as a critique of the direction of star Wars. And I feel like ever since then, and especially with their reaction to the last Jedi movie that I really love, they've been scared and reactive and, and mm -hmm. that has hurt their storytelling. The only people who aren't reactive, who don't get impacted that way are people like Favreau and Filoni on the TV side or, you know, Tony Gilroy who makes Andor and the, and the reason why all of those films get to, or all of those stories get to be what they are. Tony Gilroy goes way back with Kathy Kennedy so she trusts him more than she trusts the chatter on the internet, right? Favreau and Filoni had a, you know, Dave obviously has a long history with Lucas and with Lucasfilm, but Favreau and Filoni have a smash all a hit with the Mandalorian. If, the Man if people hadn't responded well to the Mandalorian the first season, you know, the, the roadmap looks a lot different, but they loved it. So then Favreau and Filoni get their green light to do what they want to do. And so it's less, again, reactive and scared. But things I think about things like Rogue One, a movie that I think works better than a lot of other things that Lucasfilm has put out. But there are elements that they added 
out of what feels like to me fear. So like I'm on record with this wildly unpopular opinion that I don't love that Darth Vader's in Rogue One. And I and the more popular take I have is I really hate that Leia is there, that that version, that digitally recreated Leia is there. And those connections to the Skywalker saga, putting Anakin in there and putting Leia in there was not the original intent intent of rogue one the original intent of rogue one as conceived by john knoll was let's do a story that's completely divorced from the skywalker saga there's no force in it there's no jedi in it we're just going to tell a completely side story to the main skywalker saga and i love that idea you know to your point it feels like fresh and exciting and different And then Lucasfilm gets scared that no one will care about that. So then they put Darth Vader in there. They add Darth Vader and they add Leia and they add Tarkin, I think, you know, like all of those things that they add to be like, is this familiar? Does this feel safe to you? So again, maybe that's a Disney influence, but that feels more a result of who's running the ship over, you know, over Mm. in the... Presidio, I'm here in the Bay Area, over over there in the Presidio, than it does, you know, what's going on down in Burbank, California. Does it feel like, from you, sort of your outside looking in, does it feel like Feige and the team at Marvel Studios is way more willing to take risk? What they don't do is they don't allow themselves to be derailed by public chatter. I think a good example of that is I mean, I don't know what they're going to, they've never experienced it on the level they're experiencing it right now. So I don't know what the critiques of of Marvel that are happening right now is going to do to their future plans. But something like Ant-Man, right? Where Edgar Wright, you know, gets pushed out of slash slash decides to leave Ant-Man. Huge upcry from, you know, the film twitter internet fanboys and girls including myself who love edgar wright and we're really looking forward to edgar wright's version of ant-man like we're really excited for this movie and marvel just keeps its head down hires a replacement in peyton reed makes their movie the movie comes out everyone pretty much likes it you know and they were just sort of like we're just gonna do we're confident in our decision making we're gonna do us you know, and and that's that's what's going to happen. And so that that to me is that like they're not reacting out of fear to that. They just sort of like we hear you. We think we're making the right decision. We hired this guy. We think he's going to be a good good fit for the larger company. And and we still got Paul Rudd. So you're going to show up and watch it. And like there were Edgar Wright rider dies that did have criticisms of ant-man and there there you know there's a few things to critique of ant-man for sure but by and large it was just so pleasant that it was so hard for people to stay angry about it because they're just like yeah. oh well but the movie's good so oh well you know and i think i think that's marvel's whole approach is you know if if we make good stories people will stay and I think the problem they've run into right now is that they got distracted by other goals and have lost that core. Again, I'm not counting Marvel out. I think it would be really foolish to count Marvel out when some people have, have done that before, post Ultron, post a number of things. I think they are in uh, at a bit of a crossroads right now because instead of concentrating on making like 
this this is the best version of this story and this is the best version of this story they got pulled into and this is where you can blame disney certainly blame disney for this the content wars right now they're mm-hmm. trying to compete on a quantity level and it really has damaged the quality of each individual story I want to dive into a little bit of the meta conversation here about the reporting and writing of this book, kind of two bits I want to hit on here. So one, I want to jump back to talking a little bit about the, the access and sort of the nature of reporting on nerd culture. I had a conversation with a mutual friend of ours who is a pretty relevant person in the nerd culture space and and creates content somewhat similar to yours. And they were saying, you know, we were having this conversation about, like, why don't more people write critically and report critically on Marvel Studios and on Lucasfilm and et cetera, et cetera. I think the answer for the mainstream publications is, like, the same answer for gaming. They just, like, don't take it seriously and they think it's kind of stupid. I think there's, like, a level of mainstream publications that are a little bit, you know, stuck up and look away. However... This person was saying to me that the other part is that like you have to a lot of the fans see it as tearing down what they love when it's critical coverage. And that was their sort of prediction of things. And so you have to be able to show like what they called your bona fides that you truly love this thing as much as they do and that you are reporting on it because you want it to be better. Mm -hmm. And I feel that I've had to do that in gaming for a decade. So I get it because I love video games and I want video games to be better. And there are a lot of bad things that happen in video games. So somebody's got to, you know, shine a light on those things. I'm curious though, why you think that is like, why haven't more people written investigative journalism and more reporting around the, let's focus on Marvel here because that's the book. And you're, you guys are one of the first to kind of do that as, as outsiders. Why do you think that is? I think you make some excellent points. I think there is a class of journalist who doesn't think this story is all that interesting or is slightly beneath their dignity or doesn't have the baseline familiarity, I suppose, with the world that they would need in order to know what the right questions to ask are. I think that's something that I'm really grateful I can say about my myself and my co-authors, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Edwards, is that we've been in this world for so long. You know, Gavin and Dave have been comic book fans since they were kids. I was a little bit later to it, but like I have been reporting on Marvel films since they're, you know, close to their inception. And I think that so familiarity with the world, interest in it. We're interested in this. And I'm I'm just always I think what's uh, can be unusual in a fan space is that overwhelming love for a thing love for for love for those stories you love love for those characters you love and that sort of cynical interrogation of who's telling me this story who's feeding me this story and why and i think that's that's something that dave and i and you know dave and i have worked together for I don't know, probably a decade at this point. Gavin and I, Gavin sort of joined our team a little later in the book making process. So I have less experience working with him, but Dave and I have always been curious <laughs> about 
Who is pulling the strings? Who has control over these stories? And it's so important to figure that out because these stories shape us. You know what I mean? Like you you mentioned you grew up as, as a prequel kid, right? I grew up as an original trilogy kid. These stories that we consume as children shape our ideas of who's a hero, who should be powerful. Like these are foundational, influential stories is true of video games as well they shape the way that we think about the world and view the world so i consider it very important to figure out who's telling me that's who's telling us those stories who's telling our children those stories who's telling us as adults those stories and so that has always been a part of what i do why don't more people do it Another part of that is how powerful Marvel and Disney are. This was a little scary to write this book. You know, I I I reached out to my, you know, I have connections at Disney. I reached out to them when I started the book to say, hey, man, is this going to am I going to be <laughs> thrown out in the cold, kicked out of Hollywood if I try to write this story? You know, and for the most part, they were said, no, 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 that's fine. You know, we we won't we won't block you on it. It's fine. We know you. We know you're reporting. We know you're fair. We know you like Marvel. We're not gonna we're not gonna cause a problem for you. And then, to be fair, to be honest, they did they did cause a problem for us. They told a lot of people not mm-hmm. to talk to us. They did close a lot of doors on us. And so, and they're so powerful that if they tell someone not to talk to us. In a lot of cases, that person or someone advising that person, their agent, their manager says, don't talk to them. what's what you know, why would you risk it all to talk to this journalist about Marvel when it could block you from making money for yourself in the future? So that was an, a huge impediment for the book. We then we still wound up getting to talk to hundreds of people. And some of you know, some of that is in a sideways sort of fashion, like, you know, for example, for half of the reporting of this book, I was working for Vanity Fair. Marvel did not want me talking to any of their people for the book explicitly. However, I was running a podcast at Vanity Fair where I covered Marvel television and Marvel would let me talk to their people for the podcast that I was running for Vanity Fair. And so I could ask them questions that were relevant to the project they were working on, but also helpful to help me figure out the story to tell in the book. So sort of that's how you get slightly around a blockade and journalists have been doing this since the dawn of time is just sort of like if someone throws up an obstruction, how do you figure out a way around it to get the story Mm -hmm. you want to tell anyway? I was lucky enough to be on the set of Avengers Endgame for the Marvel cover story for Vanity Fair when that happened, which means I got to talk to everyone there because that was a Marvel approved story. Marvel's like, okay, Vanity Fair, we will let you tell this story of Avengers Endgame and of our, you know, rise to power. So you have access to everyone. So it's, it's just a complicated back and forth. I think you will see more critical or deeper dives into what's going on with Marvel now that Marvel is a bit more in trouble. And you saw that already. There was, you know, a great multi-part podcast series that came out this summer that Ben Fritz did about the state of Marvel or the rise of superheroes. There was a great piece of The New Yorker a couple months ago about this. So like those larger outlets are starting to circle this story. We're just lucky that we were, you know, five years head start on it personally. So, yeah. I think the other thing that I want to ask about, because I've experienced this a lot with video games and and esports, is the the fan reaction. You know, I remember 
being told by an editor of mine at ESPN and they're wrong. And I have, I have numbers to prove that they're wrong now, but they're like, no one cared about the the business of esports stuff. And I was like, because no one cared about the business of sports. And I was like, well, that's like true and not true. Like I do. I think people care about the business of the NFL. No. Do I think that people care about the business of college football and the realignment that is going on right now with like ESPN, you know, convincing a bunch of teams and, to move and like leaving Washington state and Oregon state out in the cold. Yes, I do actually think people care about that. And I think that to use the, the esports parallel and why I know that they're wrong is like, this is a business that is on the rise. There's a lot of like PR and stuff out there and people are like, what the fuck's actually going on? They're like wanting to better educate themselves. And so, you know, I found a, a lane in doing that, but I'm curious from your perspective, like the, if fan reaction was a concern here in the reporting of this book and writing of this book, and, and when you are being more critical just generally of these topics, worrying about negative fan reaction to what mm. you're doing. I guess I was never, what I was really worried about was that I wanted to make sure we were at all times being fair. And fair sometimes means critical and fair sometimes means giving them the benefit of the doubt when they deserve it. You know what I mean? Like not to sound too journalism school about it, but we, we really wanted to create something that felt journalistically sound and not letting our own personal feelings about the movies that we love or the movies that we don't love or the you know the figures the the real world figures that are involved that we love and that we don't love we were like at all times wanting to be fair that's a huge advantage of having three people work on this book because we could always sort of check each other in our areas of sensitivity of like are you being fair right now to this person should we dial this down or should we bump this critique up a bit more like what does this incident you know for example i remember when gavin joined the project we you know we had already written a lot of the book when gavin hopped on and he came on to sort of really help us hang everything together because he had written a bunch of books before really helpful so glad he's here hugely important to the book but he came on and some of the things that dave and i had already decided were foregone conclusions he comes on and interrogates them like for example we talk about Edward Norton's behavior on the Hulk and Gavin is like sort of famously, notoriously a troubling relationship between Edward Norton and Marvel. One of the only ones that has sort of bubbled into the public consciousness in terms of behind the scenes conflict between talent and the studio. And Dave and I are sort of like, yeah, Edward Norton sort of famously a problem famously not just on this project but in general in hollywood famously and gavin's like is he that much of a problem or is you know and so gavin went around and sort of did his own digging on on other like talked to other sources stuff like that he came back he's like no you guys are right everyone is a problem but there was that interrogation of it of like okay let's make sure you're not bringing a bias of some kind so that's what we were concerned with more than are the fans going to trash this? Cause I don't think the fans are going to trash it because we're not trashing Marvel. Like the, it was not our intention to expose Marvel or dig up dirty secrets or, you know, kick them when they're down or anything like that, because we like Marvel. Right. So like that's, that wasn't right. our plan at all. And I think there's enough in there that celebrates Marvel, that no one could accuse us of just trashing a franchise that we we do care about. And, and I think a lot of people have preconceived notions. There are people who think this book is going to be, oh, just Disney bought 
Dave and Joanna and Gavin, and this is going to be like a wholesale propaganda for Marvel. And then there are people who are saying, oh, you know, Joanna and Dave and Gavin hate Marvel, so they're going to trash Marvel. And then once they read the book, though, it's hard for anyone to draw that conclusion. I really, I think yeah. I'm biased, of course, but I think we celebrate them when they deserve celebrating and we critique them when they deserve critique. And, and that's, I think any, I'll say this, I think any reasonable fan can't say that we are being unfair. And if they say we're being unfair, then I don't think they're a reasonable fan. And so then I'm not sure their opinion of the book matters that much to me. That makes sense. Of course, I want them to buy it, but you know, other than that, doesn't matter as, as someone who's two thirds of the way in it does exactly what i thought it would uh, and in a good way similar to why i listen to house far in the reverse which is i know every single person i am listening to yourself included genuinely love what you are discussing but you are not there are definitely some youtube channels i watch in, in the nerd culture space that every time i click a video i'm like this is there's going to be no critique here it's just going to be like Dave Filoni is the motherfucking goat. Like, let's, you know, let's right. bow down to the Dave Filoni altar. And it's like, no, like you guys, your entire crew with Ringer is very good at that. Okay, we love this, but like this part sucks. And here's why, like yeah. according to people who like actually love it. And that, that's what this book does too. And I, and I appreciate that. Like I never question Thank whether you. or not you guys are passionate about the subject or not. I know you are. And I know that, you know, any critique, any reporting is coming from a love of that. Thanks so much. Thank you for getting it. I appreciate it so much. I'll end on this because I know we're coming up on time. A lot of this book is about the creation and the rise of Marvel as it's been up until, yeah. you know, 2020, 2021, 2022. It's been a rough year for Marvel and not just some of the films being poorly received by critics, but Jonathan Majors being in, in legal jeopardy and having multiple people come out. And this is the person they're building their franchise on you know, as King the Conqueror and all his variants, where it's apt that we are talking on the, the release day of Loki, something he is prominently featured in as, as a villain. And I think this is so unique for this studio and it's 15 years history to be dealing with an actor who has multiple domestic violence allegations against him. And I'm curious how you think they're going to handle this because we've not gotten a real answer on how they are going to handle this moving forward. And it seems kind of business as usual. Like he's in the promo material for Loki. I'm sure he's in the episode tonight. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm curious how you think they're going to handle this. I think you make a great point. I think they're very much in a wait and see space of First of all, the court case is not decided yet, so I think they're waiting and seeing how all of that shakes out. I think they're waiting to see how people, you know, Loki was done. The shooting was done when all of this came out about Major. So, you know, they could have at that moment decided to press pause on Loki and reshoot everything that had to do with Jonathan Majors. It's not what they decided to do. So you can consider this a bit of a test balloon of how are people going to react to his involvement in Loki season two? How are people going to react to the court case when it actually plays out? And they're watching everything. They watch how do people react to Ezra Miller in the flash? That's a data point for them. 
Like, you know, the Warner Brothers gambled on the idea that people would care more about the character of the Flash and, you know, Ezra's performance in that than they would about his, like, truly astonishingly bizarre crime spree that happened before that movie came out. If the movie had been great, maybe that Flash narrative would have been different, but it wasn't. And people were mad about Ezra Miller and I cannot blame them. And so... That's a that's a, a data point for Marvel to watch. But as we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, Marvel tends to be very non-reactive. So they're watching, but they're also just going to use their own internal barometer. Now, listen, at the end of Quantumania, they painted themselves into a little bit of a corner because they have all the kings come out and all the kings look like Jonathan Majors. But also what is also true is that everything is possible in the multiverse, right? And so it would not be hard for them to recast Kang at this point if they needed to with a little yada yada multiverse portal situation. So I agree with you. I'm in constant conversation with folks I know over at Disney over what's going on with this. And I've, all I've heard is we're in a wait and see space. So, but to your point, you know, given that they've announced Kang dynasty and all of, you know, and, and, the possibility of Kang cropping up in literally everywhere, <laughs> a stinger for everything. That is a very unusual position that they put themselves in more so even than what they did with Thanos. And with Thanos, they didn't even have Brolin on until like, you know, after a couple Thanos appears, you know, so it's like, it's, it's it wasn't very, as so direct, you know, like it was yeah. just the one teaser scene at the end of Avengers. It wasn't like, yeah. you know, it would be weird to be like, oh, Dr. Doom or Galactus was secretly the puppeteer behind Kang all this time. Like, you can't just, like, hard pivot into another, like, popular villain in, yeah. in the source material. Yeah, I don't know what they're going to do, but I don't, they don't either, honestly, at this point. But but a lot of information is going to come at them very quickly, both of the response to Loki season two and the actual court case, which should be happening any day now. So, yeah. Well, Joanna, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciated having you. And where can people find you and find the book? Thank you so much. If you go to themcubook.com, that's where you can find all the information about where to order the book, the events that we have coming up. Come see some of our live shows. It'd be really fun to see you all. And then you can find me on The Ringer at uh, on House of R, Ringerverse, Trial by Content, a bunch of other shows, and on social, all your social media channels at Joe Wrote This. So yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Great, great questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you being here and uh, we'll have to have you back another time. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And while you're there, consider giving us a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you want to support us directly at Overcome and you appreciate the work that we do, you can now join our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. We have a range of benefits for our patrons, including special episodes of Visionaries and access to the video version of Visionaries. This episode was produced by Cecilia Chochetti. Our digital media intern is Beverly Perez. Special thanks to Prem Thadamkara and Sammy Daig for their help with this episode. We'll see you here next week on Visionaries. Visionaries.